morning, good morning, good morning. Or it might be afternoon for you, but it's morning here for me. Welcome to what? It is the edutainment show where adults give each other a book report of a mystery, marvel, or machination of their choosing. And this week, it's just me and Charles hanging out again. What's up, Chelsea? It's me, and it is, God, it is the crack of 10.47 a.m. <laughs> it is the break of our dawn. Yeah. Full disclosure, I'm angry and I'm anxious. Two feelings that nobody's feeling right now. So I think I think that's like the one thing that we can tell about the world is- the, Oh yeah, that, you're, that you're that totally state. that you're totally alone. <laughs> yeah, uh, my anxiety is uh, very high this morning, which is why I'm drinking iced coffee because I have a poor coping mechanism. Poor coping mechanism, sure, sure, sure. Poor coping mechanism. Um, so we're like, I'm just gonna like, drench that anxiety in further anxiety stimulants. Yeah, so what cool, I was thinking cool, cool. was like, my heart rate is elevated for no reason. Right. And then sometimes I, get into, sometimes I get into this thought loop where I'm like, if I am anxious for no reason, the universe is gonna give me something to be anxious about. So uh-huh. I'm like, well, joke's on you universe. Cause I've just pumped myself full of stimulants. So now I gave myself a reason. It was me. It was I did me. it. It's like that, that comic of like the two Spider-Mans pointing at each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was like one Spider-Man is uh, my anxiety disorder and then the other Spider-Man is all of my choices. Well, I'm a bit worried that my topic is going to take you even further into. Okay, slide aside. I'm reading this oh, book God. right now. I, You will like this. Okay. Ellie, it's the summer of 2020. We're still in quarantine. There's nothing to yeah. do but read books and uh-huh. share this podcast with your friends. Nice. <laughs> I'm six months too late and I'm reading Trick Mirror finally by Gia Tolentino. And you no idea it. what that is. Oh my God. You should definitely read it. It's really good. It's um, one of those books where it's like a series of essays. Okay. And the theme is self-delusion and it's specifically like self-delusion around like the way that we interact with the internet and social media and pop culture and all these Ooh. things. So the first one was the I and internet, and it was about how we, you and I talk about this a lot. And I said, like, I want it to be a topic on the podcast at some point, but talking about like uh, the commodification of self in social mm-hmm. media and how, oh, yeah, like when brand is you, brandizing yourself. Yeah. Like uh, turning, turning an aspect or sometimes all aspects of your personality into a product for consumption by other people um, right. is by definition, dehumanizing. I mean, I think it might be too vi- too broad to say it's like universally bad, right? Because obviously, you and I interact with those things as both consumers and products, and yes. so it would be very hypocritical for us to be like, "This is one hundred percent bad." But- <laughs> I think the problem lies when you try to retcon boundaries with it. Yeah, that's very fair. When you try and say, "Hey, no, like it's not cool that you ha- are all involved in this part of my life, where you're the one that put it out there." Yeah, like I don't. Know if you, have you been following this Gabby Hanna meltdown? No, this was almost my topic. So Gabby Hanna is a is an influencer and content creator. I think she started on Vine and then she migrated to YouTube. Yes. Okay. I've seen some of her videos on YouTube. Yeah. So she was real big in like that sort of story time era when it would be like, not clickbait. I got thrown out of a plane question mark. Right. (laughs) (laughs) This bug is bigger than my head. (laughs) And it's like, no, you're just holding it. Anyway. Yeah. um, (laughs) I think what happened was like TikTok teens started making fun of her. Okay. And for the past decade of her life, give or take, she has gotten nothing but enormous levels of validation from the internet, right? Like mm-hmm. the human brain, the human brain is not meant to conceptualize 3 million people thinking that you're interesting. I don't think that Gabby Hanna was ready to be like a TikTok teen's joke. Cause as we both know, TikTok teens are like 
merciless, but that's what makes them funny, right? It's like, right. I'll just take down anybody. I mean, I've seen a couple millennial videos that hurt my feelings. Yeah, hurt my feelings. But then I was like, it's fine. Like It was so funny when they're fun. like, yeah, they say doggo. And I was like, oh, I do say that. You're like, fuck, that's true. Anyway, Gabby Hanna, not ready to be a TikTok teens, but a joke. And she can't move past the idea that somebody doesn't like what she's doing, which mm. is just dangerous, right? Because oh, yeah. if you put yourself out on that level, it's inevitable. Right. You're going to get criticism. It's part of it. And so she keeps lashing out at these people. But what she fails to understand is that like the power dynamic of being the product, although it feels dehumanizing, means that she is always going to have more power. Like it's not it's not the same thing. Right. So like Gabby Hanna making a video about somebody saying something mean about her is not the same. It's not comparable to a TikTok team. Right. making a TikTok for their like 500 followers saying right. you're stupid like those things are not comparable right because no. she's already reached this level of commodification that like they can't even engage with right um so so that's why people don't like what she's doing and so then they criticize her more and then yeah now she's, she's like just adding all of her fuel to the fire yeah uh, although my favorite thing that gabby Hanna does is that like in order to emphasize points when she's like making a rant, she will emphasize points by singing a snippet of her own song. Ooh, wow. Yeah. So I'm like, that's what they love. They love a sound and you gave them a good, good sound. <laughs> don't give them sounds. Do not give them sounds. That If you don't want to engage with TikTok teens, if you can't handle it, step one, do not give them sounds. We are already wildly off topic. I think it's fine. Chelsea, do you have... I found fast facts. These facts, I love them. Did you know that the oldest your mom joke is 3,500 years old and it was found on a Babylonian tablet? That is so dope. The punchline is like gone, but the setup for it like roughly translated to, uh, what do you call someone who has sex with your mother? Back to, and I've actually known this one for a long time. This is the level of extra that I always aspire to be. Sure. We all remember the Star Wars prequels, just like, yeah. Just like icons, right? Like paragons of hot dude. Um, <laughs> so Samuel L. Jackson's character, Mace Windu, has a purple lightsaber uh-huh. in that movie. In those movies, well, no one had ever had a purple lightsaber in like all of Star Wars canon before sure. that. But he would only take the role if he was allowed to have a purple lightsaber because he wouldn't be able to find himself in all the wide shots. That's amazing. This one's for both of us. Did you know that freelancers originally referred to like sell swords? So that's where the term comes from. Oh, that's so cool. I did not know that. Number four, this one's for my fellow water signs. At any given moment, there are around 2,000 thunderstorms occurring on the planet. Dope. At every like moment. So it's like all times. At all times. Okay, and then this is my last one and it's not as good. I'm just like, I don't know. But uh, humans have stripes like a tiger. Anyway. What? I mean, I know. I was like, I kind of phoned that one in. It's like, no, but like all human beings have stripes like a tiger. In what way? Like on their skin. Okay. Mm hmm. No, this is true. That you can see? No, so you can't see them. So (laughs) (laughs) they're called Blaschko's lines. They are from like our embryonic development of skin and they follow the same pattern on all human beings and they kind of look like tiger stripes and they go and they whirl around your butt. You have little butt whirls. What? And scrape down like your back and your arms all over your skin. But what happens is that as you develop as like a person, sure. your genes start telling your body to make the stripes the same color. There are some genetic disorders or like medical conditions that will make them appear on people's skins. You can look up, it's called Blaschko's lines. Blaschko's lines. That's amazing. 
my title, which I think you'll enjoy, is mm-hmm. 79% deep. <laughs> uh, is it about uh, Connor's thing? N- no. Mm-mm. <laughs> yeah, my topic is about you and your boyfriend's sexual times. Well, baby, they exist. It's not that. It's not that. It's not furious. It is not that. I promise you. Okay. Um. I mean, it's not about like. It's not about like your thing, right? No, it's not about anyone's thing. Okay. <laughs> is it about skin? Is it about burns? Ooh, no. But that's good. Guess. The burns. Mm-mm. No. Mm-hmm. Is it about what? Is it about ocean? It is about ocean. Oh my god. Seeing as it's water season, I thought I'd bring you a treat. Although it's really not a treat, it's terrifying. Oh, great. (laughs) Uh, Is it about the Mariana Trench? Yes! Yes! It is about the deep sea ocean. Mine is the high price of silence. Ooh, the high price of silence. Has it anything to do with the Black Lives Matter movement? I mean, tangentially related. Yeah, I would say n- no, not specifically. I mean, I will say that racism, unfortunately, can touch almost like every shitty part of life. Yeah, no, we'll we'll circle back on that. Uh, but no, it is not does not have to do with the Black Lives Matter movement. Okay, it feels like it's to do with justice in some way, like criminal justice, which I know that you love. As I a do topic. love criminal justice. Uh, in this case. I would say like uh, there's a, a historical and sort of, I guess, semi like judicial element to this, but it is not specifically about criminal justice. Okay. Well, I'm stumped. Ooh. I don't know, but I'm looking It will all to become it. clear, my I'm, dear. I'm sure. So as you already guessed, we're talking about the deep sea ocean, which is like something that you really do have to sort of visualize so i'm going to try and take us there all right so everyone close your eyes maybe i'll put some sounds in who's to say you know we love sounds please put in a sound giant eyes spot prey huge claws grab it the tiny mouth rips it to shreds it's hard to imagine a more forbidding place than the icy cold pitch black crushing environment of the deep ocean that is true that is true terrifying very scary deep below the ocean's surface is a mysterious world that takes up 95 percent of earth's living space like most of it right Mm -hmm. but the deep sea remains largely unexplored once you get down to 650 feet light starts to fade when you get deeper the temperature drops and pressure rises And at 13,000 feet, the temperature hovers around freezing. There's no sunlight at all. And yet there's an outstanding variety of life down there. Most of which is very spooky. Yes. So photosynthesis can only occur to about 200 meters. Mm -hmm. And sunlight disappears altogether at 1,000 meters or a little bit less. While the ocean descends to a maximum depth of 11,000 meters, which was, as you said, the Mariana Trench. To get an idea of how vast these ocean depths are, consider that 79% of the entire volume of the Earth's biosphere, which is the cool word for like all the water and stuff, Mm -hmm. consists of waters with depths greater than a thousand meters. 79%. And more people have traveled into space 
then have traveled to the deep ocean realm. Now that I did not know, and that's fucking scary. Isn't that crazy? I know that like the immense pressure is a huge barrier to... Oh yeah. Which is also the part of it that scares me the most. Right horrifying. Michael Vecchioni, who was a biologist with the Smithsonian Institution, is one of the few people that have been down to the mountain. Okay. I didn't know that people had been, I thought like only robots had gone down there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We'll get there. He says, okay, basically we know so little about the deep sea that we don't know what we don't know. A lot of things are still being discovered purely by chance. So like you were just saying, until the relatively recent development of manned submersibles and remotely operated seafaring robots, which I think was what you were talking about little like remote control boys nets were one of the few tools available to scientists trying to sample life from the darkness of the deep so they're just like yeah they just throw some nets down there and see what they could haul up that's the beginning of a horror movie you don't just throw a net into darkness and be like well i wonder what's gonna come right without any kind of preparation or any knowledge at all just like who knows let's see could be fun and even if it's not gonna be something spooky like a giant squid it's not very nice either (laughs) not very nice yeah me (laughs) so yeah advances in these submersibles and image capturing and sampling technologies are increasing the opportunities for marine biologists to observe and uncover the mysteries of the deep ocean realm a little bit of science (laughs) just a little just a little little tinge of science so the oceans are divided into two broad realms the pelagic and the benthic okay pelagic and benthic Pelagic refers to the open water in which you can go swimmies and where floating organisms live, like whales and dolphins and shit. And jellyfish. And all the organisms that live there are called the pelagos or pelagos. I love them. Yeah, cute. From the shallowest to the deepest, biologists divide the pelagic into different logics, logics. But the ones we're going to explore are the bathypelagic, which is 1,000 to 4,000 meters. The abyssopelagic, which is my favorite one, abyssopelagic. 4,000 to 6,000 meters and the deepest, the Hadopelagic. The deep trench is below 6,000 meters to about 11,000 meters, which is 36,000 feet. Okay. These last three zones have no sunlight at all. Mm-hmm. And then benthic zones are bottom sediments and other surfaces of water like a lake. Those are benthic. Mm-hmm. I okay. And there are several types of deep benthic surfaces, each having different life forms. Most of the deep seafloor consists of mud or literally technically defined as ooze which is mud with a high percentage of organic remains because everything that dies in the ocean bloop, 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 floats down gross i don't like that no have you seen there's an incredible episode of a david attenborough bbc nature doc where they find a whale that's floated all the way down and they have a time lapse of it decomposing and being eaten by things horrifying <laughs> but a really cool episode what is it that a uh, little dicky says is like we go hard on earth we go hard on earth yeah <laughs> nature is metal yeah life in the deep sea must withstand total darkness extreme cold and great pressure and yet somehow the creatures that live down there are extremely varied some are huge okay some shoot shimmering sprays of light from their bodies some of these things are crazy looking so we started using these remotely operated vehicles like the one you were talking about in the 1950s which i was kind of surprised that it was like that early me too i I always just think of james cameron and his like singular obsession we'll get to him getting down there yeah um so they have these umbilical cables that transmit data between the vehicle and the researchers so they have a remote operation where diving is constrained by all the physical hazards mostly the pressure like you talked about Mm -hmm. and they have video and still cameras and then little mechanical arms for retrieval of like i'm gonna scoop up the ooze and bring it up like deep sea wallies basically the manned deep sea submersibles 
are so much spookier. Alvin is an American deep sea submersible built in 1964 that's been used extensively to shed light on the black ocean depths. The Mm -hmm. sub carries three people and has been used for more than 4,000 dives, reaching a maximum depth of 4,500 meters. France, Japan, and Russia have similar manned scientific submersibles that can reach a little bit uh, deeper than that. One China is currently building one to reach 7,000. Until 2012, only one manned submarine device has ever reached the bottom of the Mariana Trench at almost 11,000 meters. And it was called the Bathyscaphe Trieste. Okay which was manned by Jacques Picard and Don Walsh. Could not pay, there's none of money in the world. You couldn't pay me Bezos money. To go down to the Mariana Trench? Oh, okay, maybe, just cause then I could like, literally solve every social woe on the planet. <laughs> True. So maybe I would do it, but oh, I really wouldn't like it. So it had one single dive in 1960 and its windows began to crack. No! <laughs> no! And it's never been used since. Obviously. <laughs> 52 years later, on March 25th, 2012, James Cameron successfully dove in his commissioned one-man sub to the Challenger Deep and spent 20 minutes in the darkness down there. So what lives down there? That's what we all want to know. There was a census of marine life completed in 2010, which was a decade-long international study, and it uncovered more than 1,200 new species in the planet's oceans. It also highlighted just how much humans still have to learn about the deep ocean. This is a quote. There must be many animals, possibly large animals, down there that we don't know about, said Edith Widder. She's the CEO and senior scientist at the Ocean Research and Conservation Association. Okay. Over the last several decades, scientists have found some bizarre and massive creatures dwelling in the deep, like the Megamouth Shark, which is a filter feeder that grows up to 18 feet long. You got a big mouth? You got a big old mouth. <laughs> Only dozens have ever been seen since they were discovered in the 1970s. There are dozens of us. Uh, hate it. Continue. <laughs> I just looked up a picture. I don't like it. <laughs> Within the last 10 years, two large squid species have been found. And there are other large things in the deep sea we've gotten glimpses of, but have never caught. So we just don't know what we're going to discover. Right. Both these guys, Vecchioni and Widder, study the biology of the open waters of the deep ocean which is known to researchers as the water column A. Instead of the actual ocean floor, it's uh-huh. those pelagic those pelagic layers that I told you about, that where there's yeah. no sunlight. Um, they've been less explored than the floor. So you can go down to the floor and see what's there, but there's like this giant part, these layers of the ocean where, you know, it right. takes a lot more to try and figure out what's what's going, going on. Robinson, who's a senior scientist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, said in an interview it's not until we started going down there that we realized holy cow there's an astonishing number of gelatinous animals down here because remember those nets from earlier yeah they would basically just like flob through the through the holes in the net hell yeah they're like hell no you won't get me good for them so you mentioned jellyfish earlier i love a jellyfish they scare me but i love them jellyfish and their relations sometimes forming chains many feet long like they they hang out together light up with shimmering flickers of bioluminescence they account for a 25% of the biomass in the deep, which is a lot. Yeah. Robinson says maybe more, but we didn't know that because if you drag a net through deep water, any of these gelatinous animals are shredded or they turn into so much goo or they just pass through the net. So either sad, either sad end or a happy escape. Yeah, that's gross. <laughs> we don't know what the food web is like. Robinson said, we don't know how that organic material transfers through the immense food web down to the deep sea floor. We know it goes from beginning to end, but as to how it gets there, we're still in the dark, literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. No idea how the food web there works. It's just still don't know. So this is how animals have adapted to live under immense pressure in very, very cold and with no light. 
Okay. To survive and communicate in the perpetual twilight or permanent night of the deep, to find food, find a mate, save off an attacker, many of the inhabitants make their own light. Bioluminescence is Edith Widder's speciality. Okay. She says scientists are only beginning to understand what she calls a language of light. Is this going to be like that fish that has like the weird little light the... that... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, we'll get to him. You're talking about that boy. Very little is understood about how bioluminescence actually works, like how they make this light themselves. Okay. Widder says she feels very fortunate to have witnessed the spectacular underwater shows for herself. She says, it's magic. It's Harry Potter stuff to have all these explosions of light all around you, pinwheels of light. It's absolutely breathtaking. And of course, the more you know about it, the more exciting it is because you can start to recognize animals by their displays. And then, yes. So one example of a fish that uses this is the anglerfish, the most horrific creature. (laughs) She's so terrifying, so ugly. Like, I'm... how this nature is metal we go hard on earth yeah. if you look up the anglerfish it's famous because it has this bioluminescent growth on its head which if you've seen finding nemo you know it lures prey to its death the bottomless light of the ocean so it's just swimming along and there's a little like you know it's like moth to a flame but it's fish to a light yeah uh, and it just has this horrific teeth it looks like something straight out of hell yeah it's a real face only a mother could love just horrible okay so we've got bioluminescence that's number one number two body color in the deep sea animals are often transparent like jellyfish and squids or even red because the absence of red light at these depths keeps them concealed from both predators and prey red is the first color on the spectrum that you lose when you start going down underwater because it's the longest wavelength i think Mm -hmm. yes which is why when i went diving yeah. And I was, yeah. When I was an underwater videographer, you have a red filter in your camera because you need to put the color red back in, even when you're a couple of meters down underwater, so that your pictures, otherwise your pictures will come out green. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. An example of a transparent fish that's not a jelly, and I, you should Google it. The barrel eye fish was discovered, <laughs> was first described in 1939, but it remained a mystery to scientists until 2009 when they discovered that it, so it basically has this like transparent cockpit. And these two domes inside of that are its eyes that have this rotational ability to look upward for prey or face forward to see what it's eating. Oh, that's cool. So it I has... wish the Southern Lights goal was uh, totally clear. Right. So imagine if they are like upwards of your nose, down round to your ears and across the top of your head is completely see-through. And then you have these mad eyeballs <laughs> in the middle of it. So weird. That whips. Number three reproduction now for most deep sea species we don't know how they do this (laughs) we know that they probably use bioluminescence as like a mating kind of call to attract different things Uh uh-huh back to our anglerfish another reason why it's so horrific (laughs) males are tiny in comparison to females and they attach themselves to their mate using hooked teeth and establish a parasitic like relationship for life Nice. Basically, uh, the man okay, just like marriage. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> the man just chomps onto the female and stays there forever. The blood vessels of the male merge with the females, so he receives nourishment from her, and she has like an ongoing sperm source. Good. So she doesn't have to find a new mate every breeding cycle, which is helpful because she ugly. I mean, well, I, you know, I don't know. That sounds like a fair trade. It's like, it's you know, if I cook for my boyfriend and, mm-hmm. you know, make him like these like meals mm-hmm. and like clean the room yeah. and it 
gently and like patiently explain the difference between a denim shirt and a denim jacket. Yeah. And then he provides me with sperm, which I can't make myself. Which I don't want right now. <laughs> and also I don't have any use for. <laughs> that is fair. Number four, this is a cool one, gigantism. Okay, you gotta be big. Another, you gotta become big. You must another, become big. Another possible adaptation that's not fully understood is deep sea gigantism. A tendency for certain animals, certain types of animals to become truly enormous. We know about the giant squid, but there are others such as the colossal squid. <laughs> is that like the next evolution? I like the idea that the scientist came up back up and he was like, oh, I saw a big squid and someone was like a giant squid. And he's like, nah, yeah. no, it's no, 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 no. colossal. Well, I think, yeah, they named it the giant squid because they're like, well, you have a squid and you have a giant squid. And like, certainly it's not going to get bigger than it that, can't. right? No way. <laughs> no, I mean, like, we're done. Like, it's over. Then there's a fish called the King of Herring's Oarfish, which is thought no. to be the source of many sea serpent legends. Oh. Because it's, like, long and thin, and so you probably just see, like, its snaky tail receding into the deep. You're like, that's demons. That? Oh, that? That's demons. It's actually demons. The recently captured giant amphipod from 7,000 meters deep in the Kermadic Trench in near New Zealand. And I think that's one of those like real fossily looking boys. It looks like a big old shrimp, super giant (laughs) crustacean. A giant Um, crustacean? Yeah, it looks like a giant, giant shrimp. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My, I don't know, like most favorite, least favorite, one of those. There are these like tube worms gross that hang around near like hydrothermal vents i have heard of these oh that's so disgusting look i think they're um like a testament to like the will to survive right because like i can't think of a place on earth right habitable than a fucking geothermal vent and they were like nah dude we got this right that's why no one has no one knows how they grow so big because they live in such like food poor places yeah um, but it might be the final feature of underwater deep sea creatures, long lives. So many deep sea organisms, including gigantic, but also little ones, have been found to live for decades or even centuries. I hate that. <laughs> I, I, this is something I, again, kind of like a little bit new. Like I know like there's some jellyfish that are like functionally immortal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Horrifying. Like, yeah. And I'm like, no, I didn't ask. I didn't, like, I didn't like that. No just float forever like but these guys get super overfished and then obviously because they live so long it's like these communities of old fish (laughs) take a long time to replenish (laughs) like an old fish home (laughs) over there old ass old fish okay also of concern with respect to their long slow lives are a group of animals once thought to be restricted to warm tropical waters not true Little corals. Numerous cold water coral species have been found throughout the deep sea. And these animal colonies may live for centuries or amazingly even millennia. One deep sea coral off Hawaii has been dated at over 4,000 years old, making it older than the pyramids of Egypt. Mm, No. Mm -mm. These guys are just little like plants. They're just little plant guys. I don't know. I don't think things should be old. You know, I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to come out and say it. Things should not be old. Trees coral jellyfish like just like dude like give someone else a chance you know what i mean like be sweet you're done yeah be sweet i'm gonna finish my topic with a little um point about mother earth little climate little climate point 
Oh my god. We mostly know the effect of climate change and plastic on our oceans and the pelagic areas of the ocean. The swimming mm-hmm. areas. Yeah. But one overarching question confronting deep sea scientists among many disciplines concerns the ingredients and mechanics of our planet as a whole. How does what we do up here affect the deep oceans and how do the deep oceans affect things up here? What is that relationship like? Okay. In many very real ways, the deep ocean is like the flywheel on the engine of the planet. It actually dominates the organic carbon flux on Earth. This is from Cindy Lee Van Dover, who's a marine scientist and professor at Duke University. She says the magnitude of it is so great that we fail to appreciate it. But if we start tampering with it, and clearly we are, we can see some very big changes in the part of the planet where we live. She says that the way carbon is cycled by the animals that live in the deep oceans is of such great importance. It affects the chemistry of the deep, which affects the oceans in general, which affects the atmosphere and vice versa. But we still don't quite know what that give and take is like. The deep sea, the ocean and the atmosphere. We're still trying to figure out how those are actually connected. Mm -hmm. Robinson, the guy from the Monterey Bay, talked about him earlier. He says... We don't know enough about how the ocean works to be able to predict stuff. That's why I think we need to keep studying the deep sea and the sea in general, because there isn't any question that we're changing things and changing them profoundly and rapidly. And if we do that without being able to predict the consequences, it's pretty dumb. Yeah. It's not very bright. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense because all streams lead back down to the ocean which then leads down to the to the deep sea Mm -hmm. uh and then everything that's in or on the deep sea like in that ooze is you know tens to hundreds of thousands if not old of years old if not older then yeah everything that we're doing is going to end up there well that's why i was almost going to call this topic where the glitter goes a really fun callback. Just a little callback to one of our first episodes. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that reminds me, and now of course I can't remember it, which is a conspiracy, but I was listening to a podcast the other day and there was an, it wasn't the podcast I was listening to, but they had an advertisement for another podcast where they claimed they knew who was the biggest <gasps> buyer of glitter. And I was like, I don't believe that because I think that if you knew, that would have been like front page news. Right, the New York Times would have done a follow-up. Yeah, but they claimed that they had because like it was just one of those things where they were like, listen to our podcast to hear about such things. It's like blah, blah blah and blah blah. And who's the biggest buyer of glitter? And I was like, if I listen to this episode and they're just like, the answer is no one knows. I'm gonna be pissed. Oh, I bet that's what it is. Well, Ellie. Yeah, that's my that's my topic. That 70, was strong. Seventy nine percent deep. Seventy nine percent. And you know what? It gets a point. <gasps> a point. <laughs> no, I can't pull that off the way that Tyler did. It was so good. <laughs> You know, meticulously researched, very spooky. I'm going to give six points for that spook factor. Thank you Another two points for research. I am going to take away one point because you made me look up uh, what the Megamouth shark looks like, and I didn't enjoy that. Yeah. I'm going to give two points back because I'm now very obsessed with the fish that has, like, the clear skull so it can look all around. Why don't I have that? Why isn't that, like... (laughs) Why don't I have that? Like, a character perk in, like, Cyberpunk, I hope, is that you can get... You know, like, that game, like, you can get, like, all the, like, body modifications Uh that change, like, your stats. And I'm like, I want a body mod that makes, like, my skull clear. I want a barrel head skull. Yeah, I want 360-degree, like, enemy detection. Deeply strong. Thank you very much. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. I'm mad. 
This is the high cost of silence. Mm -hmm. I thought for a long time about how to anchor this topic, what sort of angle to start from to get maybe people on the hook. And then I figured out that uh, we just need to start with this TikTok. Okay. I'm going to send you a TikTok and then it doesn't, don't worry, it doesn't have any like dialogue, but I just want you to watch it and describe it for the audience while you're watching it. Okay, okay? cool. I'm going to, okay, yeah, I'm ready. Sending it to you right now. Okay. So the, the, the thumbnail says January 1st, 2020. It's a man at his computer. He's wearing a girl with a pearl earring t-shirt. He's typing. He's looking at his phone. A terrorist attack on the United States has killed 3,000 people. Relax, this happens every month and a half or so. Is anyone going to do anything about it? Doesn't look like it. February 18th, 2020. A terrorist attack on the United States has killed 3,000 people. May 24th, same thing. March 8th, 2021, same thing. It's just how things are. Why doesn't anyone care about this? August 18th, 2022, is anyone going to acknowledge this? They just don't care. January 22nd, 2023, terrorist attack has killed 3,000 people. Dear God, still? October 24th, 2023, terrorist attack has killed 3,000 people. Like clockwork. He doesn't even react. 2024. Whoa. Total death count since January 1st, 2020, 89,000. Scary point of view, isn't it? This isn't a point of view, though. This was the AIDS crisis under Reagan. Damn. Okay. Ellie, in like the TikTok world, we do call them POVs. Point of view. And well, you'll like this and by like it, I mean, you'll hate it. Uh, POV on TikTok has just come to mean like any kind of like sketch. Like it drives Connor up the wall because he's like, it's not a POV because you're not looking through like somebody's eyes. Right. That's the. (sighs) Yeah. So now (laughs) POV just means like you're watching like a scene. Okay. So, so he was like, wasn't this like a scary little sketch I did? Well, okay. it's not a sketch. Almost 90,000 people died under the Reagan administration. Whoa. From HIV AIDS. And he did almost nothing. The story is a story of a systematic and total failure of executive leadership. Hmm. Um, is something that... Huh. Yeah. Oh, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> I have researched for a really long time. Um, it's It's been an interest of mine since I was really young. And my mom gave me this book called It Happened to Nancy, which <laughs> I later learned was like borderline like weird uh, HIV AIDS like propaganda. It was like, it's very like uh, after school special, but okay. it's about like a sweet little teenager who gets infected with HIV and it is about her dying of AIDS and it was what the a first fun time read I heard of this. and yeah it was it's it's very dramatic I mean it's you know it's a it's a good read okay but that was the first time I'd ever heard of it and I was I guess like maybe like a little too interested in reading a lot about HIV and AIDS I think I wrote a story I wrote a short story in third grade about a woman dying of AIDS and uh my teacher was like I mean I <laughs> like long pause i mean i'm sure you know she thought something along the lines of like maybe there's like somebody in her family or something and i was like no Mm -mm. no i just read a book about it i more recently have become really irritated because of this fucking show that i love to rail against called 13 reasons why yes that's like people will only give you attention once you kill yourself yeah literally like that suicidal ideation uh 
power fantasy where you kill yourself and then everybody thinks that you're like the most interesting, Oof. beautiful, cool person. Deeply dark. And they really miss you and they really regret the fact that they were nicer to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what if we made that a TV show <laughs> in its most recent season, which was blissfully its final season? Oh, good. They had a storyline where they gave one of their only queer characters in the show in the course of one episode. So like this was never like established earlier in the series or anything. In the course of one episode, he faints at prom, mm -hmm. goes to the hospital, is diagnosed with end stage AIDS and dies. Oh, which is just like fundamentally not how like it's not how HIV AIDS progresses. If it's untreated, you still don't die from it within like a couple of years. You definitely don't pass out once go to the hospital and they're like oh no you're donezo yeah it's over for you it was like borderline like irresponsible propaganda. yeah irresponsible <laughs> propaganda show aimed towards like teenagers and young adults oh it's furious i bet so i started thinking about it i started thinking about doing this topic about like what reagan did or like more specifically what reagan didn't do when he was in office when faced with this at that time just like a completely unparalleled public health crisis right and i was like Hmm. hmm. This could actually be pretty prescient. Yeah, a little. So, a topical topic. <laughs> a topical topic. So, let's get into it, shall we? Let's. First of all, just as like a really quick background on HIV and AIDS, this isn't the point of the of the entire topic, but I think it's important just to get some groundwork for people who aren't super familiar because we are so fortunate now, 30 years later, living with HIV is kind of like living with diabetes. You mm -hmm. take medication daily you can control it you are usually not going to transmit it to anybody else you're going to have an almost normal lifespan similar to somebody who is hiv negative mm -hmm. so hiv the virus jumped into the united states they think sometime in between like 19 anywhere from like 1950 to 1980 okay it's not super clear what is clear is that between 1979 and 1981, they started seeing uh, what they were calling clusters of primarily gay men dying from diseases that were considered rare. So like this mm. was this was the level of fear and uncertainty around it. Imagine that like people just start like dropping dead from like medieval diseases. Right. And nobody can figure out why. So like one of the ones that kept popping up is something called Kaposi sarcoma, which is a type of cancer, but you only usually get that cancer if you literally have no immune system. Right. And it manifests as like these really dark spots on your skin. So a lot of times like on like uh, your extremities, like your arms and your mm -hmm. hands. And your so they were like, why are these like otherwise completely healthy men in their 20s and 30s getting getting this incredibly rare cancer and dying. And they finally figured out that it was a virus. And it's a virus that just, if you don't stop the virus from replicating in your body, that's HIV, right. then it will progress to a condition called AIDS, which means that you have no immune system left. Right. So again, just to be clear, people who don't know, the difference between HIV and AIDS is HIV is the virus. You can have the virus in your body and have little to no symptoms if it progresses far enough if it basically eats enough of your T cells, of your immune system, bacteria and pathogen fighting cells, then you are classified as having the condition of AIDS. Right. Where you can't fight anything off. So they figure out that this is a virus around like 1980, 1981. Before that, they called it GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency disease. Okay. Because the only thing they could figure out is that it was primarily gay men. Right. That they started in with this. And then... They figure out that there's a retrovirus that's causing it. And so, you know, obviously they let the president know right. <laughs> because they have thousands of people dying. And what does he do? Does he make a, 
a speech on television? Does he assemble a task force? Does he get on the phone with his surgeon general or get on the phone with pharmaceutical companies? I hope no. no. He does not. In fact, his communications director, Pat Buchanan, argued that AIDS was uh, nature's revenge on gay men. Oh. So we should, you know, who are we to fight nature? Another really powerful example, I think, of the administration's utter failure to do anything about the HIV AIDS epidemic comes from Ronald Reagan's press secretary. So you know that person that stands up at the podium and like riffs with reporters or whatever? Yeah. Mm -hmm. His name was Larry Speaks. And this is- Larry from Speaks? Larry, Larry Speaks. Larry Speaks. Okay. And this is from an exchange from 1982. So we're about two years in, right? A thousand people that we know of so far have died from AIDS. And that's just who they've been able to identify. Because again, this is still like a very piecemeal. Doctors in, in bigger cities like New York and San Francisco are basically begging for someone to do something about this and acknowledge it. So a journalist named Lester Kinsolving is here at the press briefing in the White House. And he tries to ask Larry Speaks about it. And this is how the conversation goes. Ken Solving, does the president have any reaction to the announcement by the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in over 600 cases? Speaks, AIDS? I haven't got anything on it. Lester Ken Solving, the so journalist, over a third of them have died. It's known as the gay plague. The press pool laughs around him. And he goes, no, it is. It's a serious thing. One in every three people that get this have died. And I wonder if the president's aware of this. Larry Speaks' response is, I don't have it. Do you? <laughs> and then uh, to which Kinsolving's like, you don't have it? Well, I'm relieved to hear that, Larry. And then Larry Speaks' response, do you? Do you have it? And he goes, no, I don't. And then Larry Speaks will, he goes, well, how do you know? And then everybody laughs. What? And then Lester Kinsolving trying to continue on with this, uh, with this line of questioning says, does the president, in other words, the White House, look on this as a great joke? And Larry Speaks says, uh, I don't know anything about it. So this happened multiple times. Here's another interaction between Speaks and Kinsolving, the journalist from 1984. So now we're we're two more years in, we're about four years into the epidemic. Now, almost 5,000 people that we know of have died. Holy crap. Several thousands more have it. Lester Kinsolving moves to the front because he wants to ask a question. Larry Speaks calls him out. He says, Lester's beginning to circle now. He's moving up front. Go ahead. Uh, Lester Kinsolving says, since the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta report is going to, people start laughing. Larry Speaks, the press secretary, cuts him off and says, this is going to be an AIDS question. So Lester Kinsolving asks questions about basically what's going to be the White House's response to this. I don't want to read out his full thing because one, it's long and two, it's full of misinformation about how HIV is transmitted. Right. That's not his fault. It's because we literally didn't have the understanding at that time. Mm -hmm. Larry Speaks goes back into his like joking reaction and says, <sighs> I know. And just basically says again, have you been checked for it, Lester Kinsolving? So basically every time this journalist, who's the only journalist that is trying to ask about the president's response to this epidemic that he has not acknowledged publicly, the press secretary's response is to jokingly ask him, well, do you have gay plague? And everybody thinks it's hysterical. Ooh. So again, you would think that maybe having uh, an ex a leader of the executive branch come out and just basically set an agenda and say that this is an important thing that we should look at because people are dying could have made a really big impact, but he didn't do that. And it doesn't excuse what he did, but it does make a lot of sense when we look at it in context. The New York Times, which is often seen as the sort of paragon of ethical journalism, yeah, they published an article 
around the same time that said bisexuals come up prostitutes at risk of exposing general population to AIDS, which by its very definition kind of separates queer people and sex workers from the general population, thereby kind of reinforcing this idea that the people who had AIDS or who were getting AIDS and who were dying of AIDS were not like you and me. So we were safe from it, right? We're not gonna get it. I use we very loosely. That's how people were feeling about it. And the government was going along with this. And this was obviously a failure from the executive level, but it wasn't just in the executive branch of the government. In 1982, in probably the first time that HIV and AIDS was brought up on the legislative floor in Congress, mm-hmm. a Republican congressman from California used the opportunity to say, this is why we should register all the gay people. Oh, no. So that spooked enough of the progressives in Congress that now nobody wanted to touch this, right? Because now it's become so political, it's so toxically political, that trying to advocate for further funding or research into HIV AIDS means that you could actually be, in their mind, an enemy of the LGBTQ community. So it becomes completely toxic to the point where it wasn't until 1983, so now we're three years in. Yeah. The only way that they could get funding passed in Congress for any kind of government research into this epidemic that has now killed tens of thousands of people is to fold it into like a general public health fund that was also going to fund toxic shock syndrome and Legionnaire's disease, which are two of like the rarest transmissible diseases that we have. Yeah. Yeah. So they were like, I don't know, just like toxic shock. Put it in with that. It's fine. We didn't have our first test for HIV until 1985. That was the ELISA test. Wow. Now we're five years in. Seven years into the epidemic is when Ronald Reagan finally acts publicly. He creates the Presidential Commission on the HIV Epidemic. This is a task force, if that sounds familiar, that is committed to tracing the source of this. Mm-hmm. I know we've talked a lot, like we've heard like a lot in recent months about the idea of like patient zero and contact tracing. So seven years in is when they decide to start trying to do this. They're going to trace the source. They're going to figure out how it's transmitted between people. And they're going to stop this spread. So this group of doctors and researchers um, and public health experts get together under the command of the president. Are you all just going, do you have it? Do you have it? (laughs) Do you have it? They put together a list of recommendations that the federal government should enact immediately in order to get on top of this thing. Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan ignores all recommendations from the commission. Huh. Hmm. Does not put a single one into place. Around the same time, thanks to the tireless work of a few dedicated researchers, because it should also be said, there's a lot of reports of hospitals who would not take patients that they suspected of having AIDS. Morgues, a lot of times, would not take the bodies of people who were suspected to have died from AIDS. In as late as 1990, there was a survey of doctors where only 24% of the doctors, so one in four, believed, only 24% believed office-based practitioners should be required to provide care for individuals with HIV infection. So the other three quarters thought that they shouldn't be required to touch them or or take care of them. But there were researchers who were working on this, even though it was not a popular thing to work on. And even though they got absolutely no support from the government, no funding, and they found a treatment. It took 25 months to get from the initial breakthrough through trials and into manufacturing, which is the fastest in recent memory, which I will admit selfishly when I read that, 
that made me really scared. <laughs> it took 25 months and they were like, oh my God, that was so fast. Whew. This first treatment that came out seven years into the epidemic was called AZT and you had to take it every four hours wow. for the rest of your life. So like if you've ever seen Rent or listened to the Rent soundtrack, which is a great musical, it's about people living with HIV in the 80s. One of the things peppered through that musical that I didn't understand when I was a kid and I figured out later is that every once in a while, a character's wristwatch will go off, it'll beep, and then everybody will stop. And it's because if you were living with HIV at that time, you just put an alarm on your watch for every four hours and like day or night in the middle of the night, you'd wake up and take your ACT and then go back wow. to sleep. But it was better than dying. Right. So, <laughs> it was the only thing I that you know. could do to keep yourself alive. Things were so bad that imagine a doctor says, okay, you have this thing. Here's this medicine. It's really expensive. You now have to take it every four hours for the rest of your life or you're going to die a really horrible, painful death. And you're like, oh my God, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> this was the level that we were at. Wow. So. Ronald Reagan never did anything. He left office really having only acknowledged it at the very end of his uh, second term of presidency. Again, he ignored. He was like, it is a thing. Thank you very much. He ignored his own task force. He put forth just a modicum of funding while slashing the budgets for the Centers for Disease Control and the Public Health Fund. Hmm. Um, (laughs) And because of that, the general public's understanding of HIV AIDS or like really their capacity to care about it didn't occur until like the early to mid 90s when the crisis was recentered around primarily white straight suburban people oh boy a really great example of like the changing emotional response to hiv aids is the ryan white case so okay. ryan white was a child who had hemophilia and he was exposed to hiv through a blood transfusion right and hiv positive so then people lost their shit. They were like, oh, well, it's not like those uh, bisexuals and those sex workers. And then Magic Johnson made his announcement. And this was a celebrity and an athlete, somebody who was seen to be like a paragon of society, Mm -hmm. who was very physically active, who was straight. He disclosed his diagnosis and that was a major tide turner. But imagine what could have happened if the president had gone on television mm-hmm. or radio or however he talked to people in the 80s. I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> and just said, these are people. These are your neighbors. These are American citizens and they're dying and we have to do something about it. And the reason that I wanted to bring this up, not only because it's a very dark part of American history that very recently happened, I think right now we can sometimes feel like we're caught up in a tide to bring it back to your topic, right? Of just like, this is completely out of our control. Nothing that we do or say is going to really affect it. And it's just like, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It's important to remember that the decisions or the failure to act on the part of these people that we put in power, they can have generational effects. This is something that Max Grumpy and I have sat and talked about sometimes. Like uh, I remember there was time where we had just gotten done streaming and he was talking about, he's like that generation of gay men who died in the eighties, they would have been our mentors. Like, mm. especially in the queer community, a lot of times your family isn't as supportive or even if they're supportive, they don't necessarily know yeah. or understand. You have a chosen family. Yeah. So you end up having this like kind of extended family. Well, that entire generation of gay men that were coming of age in the eighties that now would be like in their forties and fifties, they're gone. Right. Like a generation is wiped out. Yeah. And that is partially the fault of Ronald Reagan. Yeah. For failing to act. 
So when we address like the current failure to act about COVID, the failure to properly allocate resources amongst hospitals, the delay in research because Donald Trump wants to start a bidding war between pharmaceutical companies and medical manufacturers for who's going to make money off of this, or just the lack of executive leadership on the subject. The fact that like, not that I particularly think that like Donald Trump is a, a calming presence, but just the idea that like, your president or your leader would get in front of a camera and say, hey, I'm on top of this. Right. Got These are all the things that we're doing and I'm listening to the right people. Yeah, I'm listening. I hear you. Baseline level of validation that you look for in leadership. Yeah. It too is going to have generational consequences for us. Absolutely. I think it was Chris Hayes who said on one of his like recent broadcasts, the scholar Chris Hayes. No, I, I, like I, I follow him on Twitter. But he said, you know, the next time that you're at the grocery store, like drive through pickup or you're, you know, social distancing in a park, like you should look around because some of those people who are walking around with you or like waiting in their car next to you are going to be dead by fall. Yeah. They're just going to be gone. HIV is a different beast than Corona. It's this like slow but inevitable march towards death whereas like corona is something that we don't fully understand yet uh we know it's shaped like a corona right uh we know that some people get sick within two to 14 days and then they recover some people get sick within two to 14 days and they don't recover some people get it and they never know that they're sick at all Mm. but we have no idea what it's going to look like 5 10 25 years from now for people who have been exposed to this disease so What's similar about these two viruses is that they have mutated from a public health issue into a political one. And that is the most dangerous thing. Most destructive part of it. Ronald Reagan was able to ignore an epidemic that was killing thousands of Americans because it had morphed into this political issue of, okay, well, only certain people get sick. So COVID does disproportionately affect people in minority communities, especially people of color because of systemic racism. But can you imagine if it was only those minority groups that had it, nothing would happen at all. You've hit on something because yes, uh, COVID is disproportionately affecting communities of color and lower income communities. You know what else still does? HIV. (laughs) Yeah. HIV, I believe, uh, gosh, I just read this statistics, so I hope I don't butcher it. We have about 13% of the population in America is black, but they account for 43% of new cases of HIV. And part of that is systemic racism and lack of access to like proper uh, sex education, prophylactic Mm -hmm. materials and proper testing. Right. So when we say like, oh, is this about Black Lives Matter? Is this about civil rights movement? This specifically is not but in a way it is because there's just no part of there's no part of human life especially american life that racism doesn't touch that's what i was gonna say it's just like yeah i mean that question now is becoming more and more moot because we're learning that systemic racism touches every single aspect of our life in the west Mm -hmm. and in england too i would say for sure that yeah Every single institution, every single part of our daily lives is saturated with this issue. That's totally true. And I think that's why so many Black activists and Black people that I see on social media or they talk about like feeling irritated with activism fatigue that they see from like non-Black allies. Yeah. I've been spending like 
time trying to like reorient a lot of the things that I think about the world in terms of how they interact with anti-blackness but like that's inescapable for for black people right from the time that they're born yeah like, they don't have to have like that reckoning right it's like oh, I just have to take a little break and then I'll jump back in <laughs> I'm just gonna jump right back in I encourage you to look up any uh, mutual aid organizations in your community mm. that is often if you're looking for something where it's like, I just want to know that I made a difference, even if it's in one person's life today, mutual aid and direct action are the best way to do that. So, and I, I guarantee that if you live in like a mid-sized city or bigger, then there's probably a mutual aid organization. Look, look at your local university if you don't know where to start, because a lot of times universities will have those programs. So back to the high cost of silence. Just like a sort of like a last kind of like parting thought. Mm -hmm. You know, I love disaster movies. You and I both love disaster movies. And I love apocalyptic movies. And I love big like plague pandemic movies. And I always thought that the scariest part of living through a pandemic before I did live through one was going to be this like sort of mad dash for resources, right? And we saw it a little bit at the Mm -hmm. very beginning. The TP. Yeah, just like, oh my God, like what if there's not enough water? What if there's not enough food? What if I can't get gas in my car? Ha, that ended up really not being a problem. (laughs) And uh, and then later I remember uh, reading and just being horrified by this idea that we might not have enough ventilators for people or like medical supplies. There's not enough PPE for people. medical professionals. What I didn't realize, what I failed to imagine was that that fear, like that scenario, it presupposes a world in which everyone is afraid of getting the virus themselves. Right. And so therefore they act selfishly in accordance with that fear. Right. We're not seeing that right now. And I think it points to maybe the most insidious thing about coronavirus is that it asks us, especially like you and me, like healthy, able-bodied young people, it asks us to care more about infecting other people mm-hmm. than about preventing our own infection. Right. And it's not really working. No. You know, the the thing that I'll leave you with is like, when you go to leave your house and you're thinking about putting on a mask or like you heard about this fun thing going on, but you don't know if you should go, like, who do you want to be in that story? Like, do you want to be Lester Kinsolving? being the only person in the White House like briefing room trying to get answers? Or do you want to be Larry Speaks? And be like, well, I don't have it, do you? Oh, Chelsea. Chelsea, Chelsea, Chelsea. That's me. Five points for eloquence. Five points for importance. And five points for being a good force in the world and feeling your cancer season feelings. Uh, I am deep in my feelings. And then two points for that mic drop ending. Thank you. Oh, then a further two points for guessing my topic. Oh my God. Is this because it's almost my birthday? Yes. It's your birthday month. You get all the points on your birthday month. All the points on my birthday month. Chelsea, where can people find you? People can find me at Chelsea Harfouche, wherever internets are sold, except on TikTok where I'm at Lux Herrera, but you don't need to find me because I don't post very much. I'm mostly there to get roasted by TikTok jeans. Hell yeah. And give them no sound. So brave. And you can find you can find me at Ellie Main on Instagram and at Ellie Maney on Twitter. That's M A I N E Y. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod on both Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, I believe. And you can go to our website, those two girls.com, to check out our merch, to contact us if you want us to say something fun, all kinds of fun stuff. Oh, and check out our Patreon too. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something today, uh, that you went away with something new, some fun facts to take to your friends and some important things to try and change the world a little bit and make it a little bit better. Um, so yeah, see you guys next time. And maybe, I don't know, go learn something. 
Bam, 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 bam,